welcome to episode number three of Set in Horror. I'm your host, Chris Pagnozzi. Welcome back, or if this is your first time, this is a horror interview podcast. Um, we go behind the scenes with, with guests who have been on sets of horror movies and TV shows, um, all that good stuff. If you're a horror fan, this is, this is right up your alley. Today's guest was Mike Bradish. Uh, I met Mike years ago here in Chicago. Mike is such a funny guy, uh, very talented hilarious improviser so if you're into horror and improv comedy this is a very specific episode for you uh we also talk about uh his film the mole man of belmont avenue and working with robert england uh if you're a fan of ash versus the evil dead dana de lorenzo who plays kelly on that show was in that film and then we also talk about his uh work as skip sprang on fx's season two of fargo you should also check out Mike's podcast, uh, where podcasts can be found, called The Kid Stuff Podcast. Check that podcast out as well, and please enjoy this uh, chat we had. You are based out of L.A., so we are doing this uh, over the phone, but uh, even when you're back in Chicago, I'd, I'd love to, to do this face-to-face and see how that goes. Well, and, and it, whether it's when I'm in Chicago sometime or, you know, if this is something you want to do uh, uh, on your own, you got to talk to... John Laflamboy at some point. Yes. Because well, he's, he's, he's much more of a horror guy than I am. <laughs> yeah. He's the horror half of our, of our writing, <laughs> producing, directing team. I, I, mean, I would so love... I'd, I'd love to introduce you to him. And he, yeah. I've met him briefly here once in, um, in Chicago at a bar, and it was just too loud to actually ask the questions I wanted to, <laughs> to ask. But well, uh, he's a he's a storyteller through and through. So that's amazing. You'll, you'll get you'll get some good material out of that guy. I would love that. I would love that. Um, so yeah, I guess that's that's a good place to to start here. So you are not as big of a horror fan, um, but you certainly have interest in it because you co-wrote and directed a film called The Mole Man of Belmont Avenue. Yeah. Yeah, and it's funny to talk about that movie on a horror podcast because we went through this evolution with that movie of saying, okay, let's make a horror comedy. Uh, And John LaFlamboy, my writing and directing and uh, producing partner uh, on that movie, is a horror fan. I would say he's a pretty big horror fan. Like he's not obsessed but he's a he's a big horror fan. He sees most of the stuff that comes out. Um, but our primary motivation for making a horror movie is that he works in the haunted house industry. He's been managing, designing, and running haunted houses kind of in the Chicago and Joliet area since we got out of college almost 20 years ago. So that was what we had. Yeah. You know, we had really great makeup artists. We had really great set builders and designers. I mean, he's the designer mostly. Uh, but, you know, people who could make scary things. Yeah. So that was, you know, it was just sort of, that was the way, even when we just had a video camera and we're running around Chicago shooting stupid videos, even before there was a YouTube and we were shooting them for no reason other than to entertain ourselves. We always kind of started the process by going, okay, what do we have? Okay, well, we have this guy's house, uh, and he has a cool kitchen. Uh, we have her her apartment, and she's got a cool balcony. And then uh, and then Vicky has a lot of really great hats. 
And so we would just take all those elements and throw them in the bowl and say, all right, what's the soup look like? That's, <laughs> and, uh, yeah. And so making Mole Man largely came out of that, just knowing we those were the kinds of elements we had, so it made the most sense to make a horror movie. But then uh, as we're sh- writing the thing, it's like, okay, it's a horror comedy. And then as we're shooting it, uh, Every time it kind of came to a tonal decision on set of, okay, do we go scary with this or do we go funny with this? We'd sort of lean toward the funny. Yeah. Uh, I feel like that came partially out of my cowardice. I'm like, I just feel more confident that I could, like, I could sell a joke right here better than I could sell a scary or suspenseful moment. I just know it better. So I would always sort of lean that way. And he's also a comedy guy. So we'd, but, you know, between the two of us, I think we average more toward comedy than toward scary. Uh, and then we edited the thing and we're like, this is not like we, we started while we were shooting it. We stopped calling it a horror comedy and started calling it a comedy horror. Yeah. Okay. And then we started editing it and we said, this is a stoner buddy comedy with a monster in the background. Like it barely qualifies. Like the word horror, could you could barely put on that movie right. anymore. It's, you know, we try for a few moments of, you know, we try to get the audience to jump. We try to build some suspense through a couple moments. But by and large, that's a comedy. So, so it's funny to be talking about it on a horror, oh, of on course. A horror podcast. <laughs> no, I, no, I totally get it. But you also have uh, Robert England in it. Um, mm-hmm. Who... I mean, he's such a talented actor. I think he's probably, uh, obviously he's typecast, but was it pitched to him as a horror comedy or comedy horror or? Yeah, as, as well, we were still calling it a horror comedy. We had just started, we were a couple days into shooting when we found out he would, he was interested enough to have a phone conversation and talk about it a little bit. Uh, and then agreed to do it. So we were into it. We were probably a, about a week into shooting, and uh, and he came on. So yeah, we were definitely still calling it a horror comedy. Um, but yeah, like talk about that guy. He, as the most famous person to come anywhere near that set, was also easily the one who put the most work in. before showing up which just that impressed me so much like and and it kind of tracked that way across the entire shoot like the better known or the better established someone was in their career like you expect them to come in and be like all right let me see the script for the first time (laughs) yeah right right you know like 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 they're doing you a favor by being there and that's kind of how we felt it's like thank you for showing up you know, if if I need and I've had experiences like that where I've directed somebody where you almost have to feed them a line at a time right. while you're shooting I the thing. And and him, um, you know, there were all these stories about TJ Jagodowski. Yeah. Like there's a legend in Chicago comedy around TJ that he doesn't do scripted materials. There's something going on neurologically <laughs> where he blacks out, right? You know all I've the heard, Yeah, I've heard it. I've heard TJ. the SNL audition. Yeah, I've heard. <laughs> the SNL audition process. Like these are legendary stories in the Chicago community about TJ has made a decision not to do scripted material 
and we expected him to come in and we just wanted to say, you know, this is the gist of the scene. Do your thing. Do your thing. Yeah. And, and, you know, that's what we want. And we specifically, there was no reason to put him and Dave Pasquazi on screen together. Like, there's no narrative <laughs> justification for those two being in a room together in that movie. But we just wanted it because, you know, it's the reason I was at. I was ever at Second City or ever did improv yeah. myself was because John LaFlamboy took classes at I.O. I only ever started taking improv because he took me to a TJ and Dave show. Yeah. So, you know, like they, they played a big part in me being, you know, doing what I do now. So um, and TJ was another example of that. Like Robert Englund, he came to set. He he was he had done more work than anybody else on set. He knew his line, like it was all like out the window. We were like, wait, you know all your lines. He's like, yeah. It's like, okay, great. <laughs> okay, let's go with it. <laughs> please, please still feel free to play with him. Yeah. <laughs> but wonderful. You know, it was, yeah. yeah, it was, so it was just really nice to see that. Because I was just going to ask how much of the film or how did you use improv on set? Yeah, I mean, you know, with John and I both came from improv. Most of our cast came out of that community. Robert Englund was certainly game. You know, he was ready to go. Um, whenever John and I were in front of the camera, which is 90% of the movie, Jeff Haddock was, who was, a, a, you know, uh, ostensibly our first AD, yeah. uh, kind of became the director. You know, John and I were still doing our thing, but... You know, if we needed help with our performance or, or, you know, Jeff was always the guy who would do that for us if we weren't doing it for each other. And he's a second city. You know, he's been directing second city actors. You know, Jeff very well. He's been directing comedy actors in Chicago for a very long time. now. He's very, very good at it. We loved having him around for that. So everybody on set had all. So, yeah, I mean, it was definitely that was always the expectation and. I went through I, – I don't remember why, but I had to go through and create a s- copy of the screenplay. I don't know if it was for a festival, but I had to create a copy of the screenplay that actually looked like the movie. Oh, okay. And it, it took almost as long as writing the movie. Like, yeah. I would, like I had the script in front of me, the final version of the script, and then I had the final edited version of the movie up on a screen – and I would go through and be like, oh, my gosh, I just had to rewrite everything. <laughs> you know, it felt like it felt like I rewrote the movie from page one just by right. transcribing, transcribing the video. Like yeah. not a ton of overlap. You know, it was scene by scene was basically the same thing. But, yeah, a lot of the words changed. Um, I'm remembering your, your characters names were the Mug Brothers, right? That's right. And, and was was that influenced at all? I don't know. I mean, my brain just does this as a horror fan. I'm thinking Frog Brothers from the Lost Boys. Was there any? Or, were they well, Were they the Frog Brothers? I believe they were the, the f- two. Like it was Corey Feldman and, uh, and the other guy yeah. in the trench coats. Correct. I, no, I had, I had no memory. I love that movie. I love the muscular, bare-chested saxophonist in that movie more than anything. Yeah, he was Tina Turner. He was Tina Turner's tour saxophonist. That's right. I, yeah. I feel like I read that like a week ago yeah. on uh, Facebook that, that he was an actual saxophone player. Yeah. No, I don't, I, uh, I don't think so. I don't. I'm just curious. Rem- I don't remember where that name came well, from. Yeah. No, I, I'm just, I was only curious. It feels like uh, I thought that was maybe like a little Easter egg for us. A slight nod. I wish. I wish it was. 
Um, what about uh, Dana De Lorenzo, who is now yeah. one of the stars of uh, Ash versus the Evil Dead? Did you yeah. did you know about her before this film, or did you just come in for an audition, or how did no, you? No, she came in. We went to. Um, Mickey Pascal and uh, Rud- Jennifer Jennifer Rudnicky yeah. Duke, uh, and we only we only auditioned three parts. We auditioned that one that Dana played. Uh, there was uh, an old lady, Mrs. Habershackle, who lived in the building, and then there was a priest. And we just so we just went into the casting office to uh, Pascal Rudnicky for one day. And we looked at actors for those three parts and saw some really great people. But for that part, I think Molly is the character's name. Uh, Dana was the first person they brought in. Wow. She was, I think she was the first person we saw that day. I think we auditioned that part first. She was the first person to come in. And we were like, okay. <laughs> like, there wasn't, <laughs> You're very there wasn't that much discussion. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> are they all going to be this good? Because it's going to yeah. be impossible. And they were great. And they were great. But, like, she, I mean, That's she great. just hit it. So, and it was so funny. She, at the time, was in... Um, an Amy Winehouse tribute band. Oh my god! And she had a show that night, so she came in already wearing like makeup, fake tattoos, and all of her Amy Winehouse hair and makeup. But auditioned for this part, Perfect. basically in in <laughs> Amy Winehouse garb. Uh, but still, yeah, she was she was kind of the one that Mickey and Jennifer said was their favorite. Yeah, yeah. And and uh, quickly became our favorite too. Yeah, and who knew like we yeah, we saw we, we saw her a few times afterward and I'd bump into her in LA. We'd be at auditions every once in a while and then all of a sudden she got that Ash versus uh Evil. It was so exciting to see yeah. that for her cuz she's great and she'd been, you know, she'd been plugging away here in Chicago and then or there in Chicago and then here in LA for a while and just to see her hit it like that was Awesome. Yeah, she's she's perfect. She's perfect for the uh, Stoner Molly, and she's perfect for. Um, I'm not remembering her character's name on Ash. Kelly. Yeah. Kelly. That could be Kelly. Um, I think so. That does sound right. So you you audition three people. So everybody else in the film, you sort of did you write for those roles? We, yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. We. I mean, we wrote the movie thinking, okay, all of our friends, which was most of our theater friends from John and I went to. Uh, Went to school in Southern Illinois in Carbondale, sure, and so we had all of our theater friends that we'd made all our videos with, and we wrote the parts. This is kind of this is kind of a screw you to our friends, <laughs> but we wrote the parts thinking of all of our friends, and then we said, "But wouldn't it be fun if Greg Holloman played this part, and yeah. Brian Boland played this part, and TJ and Dave played these parts, Tim and Kazarinsky. you know Robert Englund played these part, and if Tim Kazarinsky played this part, yeah. wouldn't that be amazing?" And then we started sending it, and literally every single person said yes. So we were like <laughs> writing smaller parts for. We still had like our friend Justin was the mole man and got to be one of the stoners in the apartment. Our friend Paul, who we, with TJ's character is named Paulie because we wrote it for our friend Paulie, <laughs> and Paulie ended up playing another one of the stoners. Like we still got those those guys into the movie, but um, you know, all of a sudden, all of our comedy heroes. Are agreeing to be in our movie. Yeah. And we, John and I kind of looked at each other and like, we're going to have to make this look like a real set. <laughs> like we're going to need to have like, I don't know, paperwork 
and uh, craft services. So all of a sudden we start, you know, enlisting all of John's haunted house kids, all these people who had been working for him as like high school interns. And then it sort of graduated into being his staff at the haunted house and looking at them and going, hey, you need to learn what a production manager is. You need to learn what an AD is. You need to learn, you know, it's like you need to pretend like you know what it's what working on a movie set is like and make it look like you know what you're doing because all these real actors are going to be here and we want it to appear as though we know what we're doing. Absolutely. Uh, I, I those are the great stories, though, and, and uh, I imagine it would be more fun to do it that way than to work on a film with a bunch of people like you didn't know, you didn't know the crew. You, I mean, knowing these people from or like John's friends, I'm sure you could you could get more out of them. Um, not to take. Oh, for sure. Yeah. yeah, I mean, we had we had one person who shall remain unnamed <laughs> that we got. I don't. I don't even know how we found this person. It was a referral through a referral who was working in a pre, pretty key position on the crew, and that guy uh, at the end of eight hours would say, "Okay, my day is over." Uh, my crew and I are done. And we'd be like, oh, uh, yeah, we're like halfway through our shoot day. Yeah. <laughs> so it very, very quickly became clear, like, we needed to be upfront with everybody. Like, you've really got to want to be here. And it's got to be, to on some level, important to you that you're participating in making this thing and you want it to be the best possible thing. And we had about a week with that person and very luckily through another referral was a, were able to fire him <laughs> and replace him with, with somebody else who, you know, wanted to get in the trenches with us. Yeah, and yeah I mean, it, it being John's people, being those Haunted House, being the yeah, Zombie Army Productions is his company and it being those Zombie Army people, like, we could not have done it. Right. Any right. other way, it ha- it had to be. It had to be a group of friends who were excited about making a thing. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a, exactly my point. And you you want someone who's passionate about it. I, filmmaking, yes, is a job, and it's a lot of work. And the hours are unlike many other careers. But yeah. th- those people do it because they love being on set, and you can't treat it like you're punching in and punching out like Fred Flintstone. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it is not. It's not a clock punching job. And and John and I have said we never want to do it that way again. Like a lot of the crew members deferred their pay, which meant they were waiting for back end. Yeah. And of course, I don't know how many years, six years since we released that movie, five, six years. There's no back end. (laughs) It's a tiny little independent comedy. Like there's there's no. (laughs) <laughs> that's that movie's it like we did great uh with the people who gave us money yeah we were able to give all of our investors back 120 percent of their investment because mostly because of the tax break from illinois from we illinois, were able right. to do that do the whole the tax uh there was a tax rebate but then you can sell the rebate at a you know, 90 cents on the dollar, 88 cents on the dollar, whatever it ended up being. We found this broker who was able to sort of swing this deal for us where we got back, I don't know, a quarter of what we spent in actual cash. But, you know, a lot of that crew was there for four weeks 
not getting paid. And, you know, while we appreciate that and we loved working that way and it was, you know, everybody was passionate, everybody was in the trenches, John and I are, you know, working on the script for our next horror comedy right now. Oh, you are? And, yeah, and we don't want to do it that way again. We want to make sure. We want everybody to be passionate and in the trenches with us, but we also want to make sure, you know, they can pay their rent while they're doing it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's funny, a lot of those people, a lot of the people that worked on that movie, like, are at Cinespace now. Like, they work, like, they do, they've stayed in film. Like, they'll still come back and do The Haunted House with John during that season, but a lot of them, you know, during that four weeks we shot that movie, discovered a love for whatever their department was and right. continued working electrical or working set or doing something on, on set. That's amazing. I mean, so uh, bringing them back, you know, now all of a sudden they're seasoned professionals. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, that that's my, my question. Are you going to this horror comedy or comedy horror? Are you going to shoot it in Illinois? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We'll be back there. John has John has three haunted houses, and this one, uh, Mole Man, we used some of those assets. We're going to double down on that this time, and this one is actually set in a haunted house and almost entirely will be set in a haunted house and it's not going to be one of his haunted houses i think it'll be kind of an amalgam of probably all three of his haunted houses we'll oh, cool. use bits and pieces and then we'll also probably build a lot of new stuff too that's not in any of his haunted houses but yeah this one's you know the working the working title is haunted house the movie so we're <laughs> I love even it. even more so than with mole man this one's going to be yeah we i think i read an article where what was it? it was like or even just a little facebook thing years and years ago that said uh, ways to know your movie is bad <laughs> and it's uh, one of them was if it's named anything colon the movie <laughs> so we're like we doubled down like mole man like we we love stupid ridiculous titles uh, the, you know the way the mole man of belmont avenue tries to make it sound so much more important of than course, it is yeah, it's a great title it's a great title um and then haunted house the movie same haunted thing, house, just the movie self-important um self-important but also like very uncreative <laughs> <laughs> no 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 people know exactly what they're gonna get they're gonna get a movie about a haunted house that's right. It's good branding. This thing markets itself. Clear. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Clear, concise. What What do you think um, that you learn from Mole Man um, that you'll either carry over or you won't carry over into your, into your Haunted House movie? The biggest thing is uh, delegating a little bit more. Because John and I, like, we just felt so guilty... Um, asking people to do things for little or no money that we did a lot. Like I was scanning receipts on set. (laughs) You know, the guy who directed the movie, who's starring the movie and producing (laughs) the movie should not be doing production office work. And I was, and he was doing other stuff too. Uh, And we'll still do, like I, over the course of post-production sort of lost the editing. I was the editor going into the movie and I still end up, I'm like the co-editor, but I'm the second, like one of the guys in our post house, Dustin Foster, mm-hmm. really took over the editing. And that was such a blessing because he's so much better at it than I am, well, you know? 
did you learn, did you know editing um, in college or? I, 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 no, not in college. I just sort of um, picked it up. I mean, I was, I was a film major for my first couple of years in college, but I was a film major, uh, you know, this is in the early 90s, so it was right. pre-digital. So I was actually, the only production class I ever took, I was actually chopping 8mm yeah, film that's... together with a little eyepiece. You know, so I know I taught myself on iMovie and then graduated to Final Cut and then migrated over to Premiere Pro, you know, just over the course of years. And I'm mostly self-taught and YouTube taught. Like I'm pretty comfortable with it now. But but the you know, knowing the tools is one thing like Dustin is an editor, like it's an art form as well as a craft. And and he definitely brought things into the movie you know it's still a process between john and i is the but like there's it's one thing to be the editor and it's another thing to be the director working with the editor i much prefer being the director working with the editor and sort of you know every time somebody's input comes in hopefully it elevates the whole thing you know that that the final product is greater than the sum of the parts like the script is one thing but then hopefully when you shoot the script, you make some you shoot something even better than what you wrote. And then when you edit what you shot, hopefully yeah. you've edited together something that's even better than what you shot. You know, hopefully hopefully there's that um I don't know, it just that the the sum <laughs> that it ends up being greater than the sum of the parts. Each each step of the way is sort of the ideal and and then also just on set like Bringing in things as simple as a payroll company right, instead of right. trying to figure out that math or having you know John's uh, John's girlfriend figure that out, which she does very well. Like she's done it in the haunted house. Like she does a lot of that stuff in the haunted house. But it's like no, let's you know somebody figuring out taxes, yeah, you know, all those kinds of things, and really just dedicated people doing the paperwork. Smart. Like that's kind of the big lesson is just delegating not trying to do everything ourselves and we're not the leads in this movie we've written ourselves some fun parts in this movie but we're not the leads we've written you know we actually well i mean this is probably premature to say but i i think i think dana de lorenzo may be one of the one of the people we go to if she's still taking our calls right 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 <laughs> uh at this point That'd you know great. she's a person we would we would love to get in but um you know, just sort of, yeah, we're, we're sort of trying to take our take ourselves out of as many jobs as possible so we can really focus on the ones That's, that we do want to do with the writing and directing. That's great. That is really great. Uh, I'm going to switch focus for a little bit here and, and talk about Fargo um, season two because you were sure you were amazing. It was I had no idea. I mean, I was such a fan of the show. And then watching season two, I had no idea you were going to be into it or in it. And it was uh it was such a wonderful surprise, and your character was oh so my gosh. great. It was a, it was an even more wonderful surprise for me. <laughs> it, was, it was, oh my gosh, that was so great. Um, did you guys actually shoot that in North Dakota, or no? Uh, they shot. I think they've shot all three seasons in Calgary. Oh wow, in Alberta. Okay, that makes yeah. sense. I'm, I know they shot one and two, and I'm almost positive they also shot three there. But yeah, they've always shot in and around. Within like a couple hour radius of Calgary. Yeah. Different tax incentives there too, which is, yeah. and it's a gorgeous landscape 
Yeah, backdrop. beautiful, beautiful place. Yeah. It reminds me of Chicago. I'd never been before. Uh, and it was funny, like, I don't know if Chicago is still this way, but when I was there, I felt like downtown kind of died a little bit on the weekend. Uh, and it was just so amazing to walk around these giant sky, skyscrapers in, on a Saturday yeah. or Sunday and feel like there's nobody around. Unless oh, yeah. you happen to be in an area with a ton of restaurants. You know, if it's really a business district uh, there downtown Chicago and I was uh, in Calgary on like a Saturday or Sunday and it was the exact same feeling. And, you know, it was January, so it was cold. Yeah, <laughs> and, um, yeah it's a beautiful place. And then like Banff, like there's a lot of really beautiful like mountains and everything around there. Yeah. Uh, spoiler alert the, uh, to people who haven't seen Fargo season two, but your your death scene was... So original, I hadn't seen that before, and uh, I imagine that was an interesting process to be a part of. Uh, not sure what they yeah, actually dumped, fun. what they dumped on you, but it, it felt real. Nothing. Yeah, nothing. <laughs> they dumped wow. nothing. I, I, and I didn't know until I got there. Like all day, I was like, I wonder how this is going to work. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. no, it was all. It was a hundred percent digital. There was That's... nothing in that truck. Wow. It was an empty truck in an empty pit, and they did it all later on. That uh, um, is very impressive. <laughs> yeah, I had I had no idea what it was going to be until I got there, and I was very curious to find out. I was like, Are they just going to dump a little and then sort of <laughs> add a, add some more later? But yeah, I, I had no idea until the day of yeah. what and, that was going to look like. And chances are, if it was some sort of real substance, it would have been freezing. Yeah, yeah <laughs> or yeah. or boiling hot. Yeah. Like I thought. I think part of the idea. I don't know if this was conveyed, but I think it was supposed to be like not only I'm getting buried, but I think it's burning hot <laughs> whatever gravel or coal or you know blacktop whatever it's supposed to be i think right. in the script i wasn't just being smothered and suffocated i think i was having the flesh melted off of my body as it was happening <laughs> wow even more horrifying yeah i mean I imagine when you read that in the script you're like oh um what <laughs> oh i was so excited like cuz it's you know it's like fargo deaths Going back to the wood chipper. Oh, it's like, yeah. I get a no, wood chipper. Is... I get I get a wood chipper. <laughs> like, I was so geeked out like that I got like I get an interesting I'm going to die interestingly yeah. on Fargo. Like I was so excited about that. Very cool. Um, yeah. But that was fun. that that the Fargo experience actually ties very directly back to. Are you still there? Uh, to Mole Man because when. Uh, when we were working on Mole Man, uh, Pascal Rudnicki casting was still called Tenor Pascal Rudnicki casting because okay. their third partner used to be another casting director named Rachel Tenor. Ah. Uh, but by the time I started doing Second City and getting an agent and auditioning in Chicago, she had already started spending most or all of her time out in L.A. Yeah. But she still had her name on the company. That actually changed or was in the process of changing during Mole Man. Like we sent them, I don't know, I think it was their credit in the uh, opening credits of like, okay, and then casting by Tenor Pascal Red Nikki. And Mickey and Jennifer were like, actually, Rachel's going to take her name off the company. So that just happened then. So I never met Rachel when she was a casting director in Chicago. But Mickey and Jennifer sent her the script of Mole Man 
and she is the one who got Robert Anglin wow, uh, okay. for us. I was going to ask. So, so I had that relationship with her. And then when I moved out to L.A., I don't remember what it was, but I'd been emailing with her. Like there was talk of her coming on to Mole Man as a producer. Like she was really excited about the movie when she read the script. Um, so it just ended up being a really good relationship, even though I'd never met her in Chicago. We sort of had an email relationship. And then the first time I met her in person was auditioning for Colin Hanks's part in season one gotcha. of Fargo. So I went in, I met her for that, and I it went well. Like I got a call back. I met Noah Hawley and uh, Warren Littlefield, the creator and the producer of of Fargo, during that process. And then a year later, you know, they uh, called. I, I I went into my manager's office, and I said, "Okay, the second season of Fargo is going to start soon. If there's a part that's right, we know like." Rachel will probably bring me in. But this time, I don't want to shoot for such a big part. Like in the breakdown, the casting breakdown for season one, they have uh, Gus, Colin Hanks' character in season one. He's in nine out of ten episodes. Yeah. And I go, I'm, I'm not famous, so I don't want to shoot for a nine out of ten episode character. And we're looking at the breakdown for season two. I'm visiting my manager in their office, and he says, oh, this just came out. And shows me the breakdown, and I point this character, Skip Sprang. I think at the time it said five out of ten. It ended up being out of three, being three. And uh, and I pointed at it, and I go, that guy. <laughs> That's amazing. Bag, like, he's my age. He's my age. It's a, like it's a fun, dorky, nerdy character. Uh, see if Rachel will bring me in for Skip. <laughs> see if I could get in the room for Skip Sprang, and I will do everything I can to get that part. Yeah. So, uh, so she did. She brought me back in. I auditioned for that, and then between that audition and then getting the call back, I, uh, you know, the character owned a typewriter store, so I just took my video camera out and made a commercial, just a sixty-second commercial for my typewriter store and tried to make it look like this, the era, like a yeah. 1970s commercial uh, and shot that, sent it to her and she sent it to the producers. And then I went in for the callback and found out, you know, much, much, much later that talking to Noah, to the, the creator of Fargo, I was like, so how much did that commercial help me out? And he goes, oh, 100%. You oh. would never have gotten this job without that commercial. That like, is that's 100% why, why you got that job. That is a great story. And, and you're probably really thankful that you asked that question. I mean. Yeah. Yeah, it's good to know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that guy, Noah, uh, Holly, is brilliant. Um, I mean, did you watch Legion? Yes. Legion is so good. I was addicted. So good. It had it has like this really amazing horror undertone of it with some of those. Oh yeah, so increasingly throughout. Like I felt like the first watching the first episode of that show, I was like, "This is very Terry Gilliam." Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. then, but then, like later in the season, like it got more and more. It it really turned into a horror it did. show. Yeah. Like as the season progressed more and more and more, like talk about horror. Oh my gosh, that's so yeah. He's like in prolific. Yes. Like he's he's a novelist. He's adapting one of his novels. 
for as a movie, and now he's a, also I think adapting uh, Breakfast of Champions. Oh no, Cat's Cradle, Cat's Cradle, the Kurt Vonnegut novel. Kurt Vonnegut, I think it's Cat's Cradle. Yeah, it's a Kurt Vonnegut novel. I think it's Cat's Cradle. Okay. Uh, maybe it's Breakfast of Champions. No, I think it's Cat's Cradle. I can't remember. <laughs> I'm going to read both also of them. Also for FX. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. But but also as a miniseries for FX. Wow. Uh, yeah, yeah, that guy's brilliant. That's really amazing. How, how much do you think you learned um, just working on Fargo for those three episodes? Um, like, I mean, is there anything? I mean, I, one of the main things I learned is that a set is a set, you know, like at the end of the day, whether it's, you know, me, Jeff Haddock and three other people from the second city crew and two other second city actors shooting an industrial for second city or shooting an industrial on a cruise ship. And it's, you know, there are four (laughs) of us like at the end of the day, like that, that felt like that's like the highest level I've gotten to experience working at. You know, it's like this really great show, like these really brilliant, the directors they'd bring in were really incredible. And, um, you know, I recognize most of the actors I'm working with or already know their names. And it's like. But it's still just a set, you know, sure. the cam- there's one camera there. There's maybe a second camera there. And everybody's doing their job, you know? It just, everybody here is really, really good at their job. But I've been on other sets. Like, I've been on a cruise ship where, you know, Todd Two and Jeff Haddock are both really good at their job. Bryn Humphreys is a really good producer, you know? And it's like, uh, any set where everybody's good at their job and is excited about what they're doing has something in common with every other set that's like that. So it was nice because it kind of took some of the – it kind of demystified the process. Sure, yeah. It's, yeah, that's a great point. It's the, it's the same process no matter where you're doing it or on what scale. Well, you were brilliant in Fargo season two. And, and, and I cannot Thank you. wait to see um, what you guys do next with uh, your Haunted House movie, the movie. Uh, Neither can I. <laughs> <laughs> I'm super curious. I think hopefully I think we're sh- hoping to shoot. No, I'm just going to say it this way because that'll put pressure on us. Oh. We're going to start shooting it in the summer of 2019. OK. Gosh, is that, that seems really far away. A year and a half. <laughs> but that's about right. I think yeah. that's about right. Because yeah, we got to finish writing it. Um, we got a pretty good outline right now. And then there'll be lots of pre-production. And, you know, John sort of goes into a shell like a turtle from... I don't know, August through the new year. Yeah. Like he's still wrapped. Like I still can't call him right now because he's wrapping up his haunted house. Wrapping up Halloween season. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, yeah, it seems like a long time, but we'll use it. it, We need that much time. So 2019, we'll start shooting that thing. So, yeah, 2021, maybe it'll be Okay. That's very exciting. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Uh, this has been... And of course, you're invited. You'll be on set. I would love like, to. We've got to get you out. Like, you know, you're, you're talking to people. You're doing a podcast about horror sets. <laughs> we'll have to get you on set for this thing. I, I would love that. Um, yeah. 2019, I'll see you. But uh, yes, if, we'll see you <laughs> if you're in Chicago before that, I'd, I'd love to catch up. Of course. Okay, that was episode three. Thanks again for listening. And if you're listening to this, listening to the whole thing. Um, you can find us all over social media. Set in Horror is a Sea Monsters production created by me, Chris Bagnosi. You can follow Sea Monsters on Twitter at Monster C. 
on Instagram. It is at Sea Monsters Films. And I recently created a Instagram and Twitter for Set and Horror, which can be found at Set and Horror on those platforms. And if you don't want to remember all this stuff or write it down, go to www.cmonsters.tv and you can find all those links right there, as well as past episodes. Thank you, and uh, we'll be talking to you again soon.